Good morning, Kessid. It is great to be back. And seriously, we have been talking about grief for six weeks and no ice cream. <laughs> the first week of the series on girls, ice cream. That's something very, very wrong with that. We are finishing up, we're wrapping up our series on tear soup this morning. We have um, been invited on that journey. Danny introduced tear soup to you uh, six weeks ago and invited you to kind of hitchhike on his own grief journey, very vulnerably, I might add. We talked about... Um, why grieve, remember? That it recognizes value, that it promotes compassion. Gentlemen, it invites intimacy, that it um, aligns our hearts with God, and um, then we talked about ingredients that make up grief, the grief experience. You remember those? Denial, be part of the grief experience. Anger, that we could be angry over what we've lost, what's been taken sometimes from us. We could even be angry at God if we need to. Then that there's bargaining, Depression, which gets a bad name in America. That is, you could feel sad about the hurts that you experienced. And then finally, acceptance. Those ingredients go in to make tear soup as we experience it. And then you had the opportunity last week to meet Grandy. True? Oh, my goodness. Can I, can I just say... You don't get that wise as she is without letting grief do its work in you. Could you see that? That experience of hers. If you didn't get a chance to, um, to hear that, I'd encourage you to watch it. And if you've already were here and watched it, uh, I would encourage you to watch it again. There was just a lot of really insightful, wonderful wisdom that she shared. So we've talked about the ingredients, we talked about why grieve. This morning we're going to look at some tools for um, healthy grieving. Um, as we begin, though, I want to highlight why grieving comes so challenging for us, because we live in a culture that doesn't give us much permission to lean into those hard places. So. With those obstacles in mind, I wanted to um, begin this morning with a song, if I could. You know I'm a therapist. Um, clients come and they sit in my waiting room, uh, waiting for their sessions. So I have um, some music for them to listen to, to kind of keep things as calm as possible. So I have a Pandora station that I've kind of put together, and that music plays in the background. I come out to... Um, pick up one of my clients, 
one morning, um, and I met with this song, which snuck on to my Pandora station, which probably, as you listen to it this morning, would not be the finest choice of songs for a therapist's office. So it's an old song, Nat King Cole, okay? Um, oh, don't hoot and holler yet. You haven't heard the song, <laughs> okay? It's an old song uh, that he sings. As we listen to it this morning, I want you to soak it in because it's representative again of the messages that we tend to hear over and over um, about our sadness and our grief. The lyrics are gonna be up on the screen, so as you listen, read along, and um, enjoy, okay? Let's listen. Smile, though your heart is aching Smile even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by If you smile through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun come shining through For you Light up your face with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Although a tear may be ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile. It's wonderful watching you do that. <laughs> oh. It's amazing that I would have any clients still left, isn't it? <laughs> you hear a couple verses of that and they're out of there. Unfortunately, that's the message too often by our culture, and if you listened to Grandy last week, her experience even within the church, remember? Where the expectation was we just want everybody to be happy, which doesn't leave much room for people's grief and their sadness. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis? That name ring any bells to you at all? He was the uh, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, which you might have watched on TV. He's, uh, he wrote a number of um, really deep and powerful um, theological books. What you might not know is that C.S. Lewis also wrote a book 
on grief, called A Grief Observed. The story behind that is that um, C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life. Eventually, uh, he dedicated himself to teaching and writing and all that, but he struck up a um, corresponding relationship uh, by letter with an American writer who was um, struggling with cancer. And over the course of their correspondence together, um, he began to develop more and more feelings towards her. Her cancer went into remission, and um, he decided to propose to her. And so, later in life, he uh, married a woman named Joy Davidman in 1956. Soon after they were married, her cancer returned. She struggled, and four years um, after they married, she died at the age of 45. Lewis was devastated. His observations of himself as he struggled with what, how this could be and what it meant um, are saved for us in the book, A Grief Observed. Now, what's interesting is that this book that I hold is very unique for this reason. It was published in 1961. On the um, copyright page, it says, 1961 by N.W. Clerk. That is, Lewis, who writes about his loss of his wife in the raw form, his struggle with his faith, his inability to understand how this could happen, why God would do this later in life when he finally found a love. He uh, published the book under a pseudonym. He didn't claim it as his own. He only was acknowledged as the author of the book um, after he died. When she passed away, Lewis um, developed a heart condition. Two years later, he went into a coma. He recovered from the coma only to die a year later in what we might presume was a broken heart. He didn't publish it under his own name for fear that the faith community wouldn't be comfortable with the struggle that he had around his grief, his loss, and even his struggle with his faith. Unfortunately, the church has not always been a safe place for people to grieve. That's one of the reasons why it's so wonderful that we are having this six-week conversation that we are. If, like me, you didn't grow up in a home where grief was modeled in wonderful ways, you might find yourself uh, at this point in the series with this question. 
all right, Byron, Annie, you kind of convinced me that grief is important. I might want to consider doing that. However, I have no idea where to begin or what that would even look like because no one's modeled that for me. I haven't been exposed to that. So if you find yourself in that spot this morning, like I suspect many do, um, I want us to wrap up the series by talking practically about what does grieving actually then entail? What does it look like? How do we go about doing that in a way that seems healthy and redemptive and helpful? So I'm going to give you five suggestions around that for you note takers, okay? Uh, number one, first, to be most healthy and helpful for us, grieving needs to be intentional. That is, it's purposeful. We're doing it on purpose. We're focusing in on it. So what that means, gentlemen, hypothetically, is that when you cry during a McDonald's commercial where, you know, the grandkids are playing with grandpa and it's so, so sweet, or when you cry during a sad scene in a movie, or because your favorite NFL team lost, those don't really count as grieving your own wounds and hurts, okay? So grieving needs to be intentional. It is most helpful when we engage it in a purposeful and intentional way. That means that you're thinking about what you're grieving. You're thinking about the loss. That you are sad for what has happened. That you are calculating the cost to you. That you are feeling sorry for yourself. Now, I know I just gave some of you a rash because we're, we're not used to thinking those terms like, oh, no, no, we don't feel sorry for ourselves. Big boys don't cry, you know, all of that kind of thing. Can I just say that feeling sorry for yourself is really underrated? Like, feeling sorry for ourselves, it's a, it's a poor place to live, but it's a critical place to visit. That's what grieving looks like, is that we are feeling sad about our experience, that we are feeling sorry for ourselves. You may recall that um, Grandy, in the book, Tear Soup, intentionally takes her time to make her tear soup, slowly, thoughtfully, carefully. She focuses in on it. She attends to it as it bubbles. She gives it loving attention. That's how tear soup is best and healthiest. So we grieve in healthy ways when we grieve focusing on what we've lost and the hurts that we've experienced. We grieve intentionally. Second, tear soup, for it to be best, needs to simmer. Grieving requires space and opportunity. That's one of the things that therapists probably try to help provide. 
is a space just to be quiet and to sit with what we've lost. So you create an opportunity for those things and those feelings to bubble to the surface. In Tear Soup, you might remember that she describes kind of stirring in memories, remembrances. That's part of the process. But, but we as a culture like things quick, don't we? We want it to be over. People ask me, in fact, how long does it take, Byron, for, for you to grieve enough, for you to grieve well? And I would suggest that we let it take as long as it takes. Now again, we have lots of obstacles to that. If you watch news much at all, you'll hear reporters and commentators say things like this. The towers came down, Surfside in Florida, they keep finding people, and then the reporter says, and it's been two weeks and they're still grieving, as though somehow they should be done now with that and ready to move on with life. That's really not how it works. Grieving takes us a long time often. We live in a microwave culture, and grief is more of a crock pot kind of meal. Conventional wisdom would suggest that sometimes that lasts for years as we continue to take in the depth of the loss for ourselves. When people ask me how long it takes to grieve, um, I have an illustration to help with that. I have to tell you that my wife suggested I not use this illustration. But it's the best illustration that I have for what I'm trying to describe. So you can be the judge. Asking how long grieving is gonna take is kind of like asking someone who's heading to the restroom how long they're going to be. Like, you know you have to go, okay? You're pretty sure you're in the right place you don't know how long you're going to be there, but you pretty much know when you're done, okay? And grieving is kind of like that, okay? It's like, I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'll, I'll let you know when we're all done. Old people like me really understand that illustration, believe me, okay? So grieving takes time. It's intentional. It's focused. It takes time. We have to find space and quiet for us to be able to take it in. Third, this is going to make you mildly uncomfortable, grieving usually involves crying. That's commonly how we express our grief. In my office, um, I deal with many sad and painful stories. I watch people in my office choke back tears, push them away, pretend they have allergies, change the topic, all in an attempt 
to avoid crying. Years ago, I ran a recovery group for women who had childhood trauma. And part of that experience, collectively together, there were about 10 to 12 women in the group, involved them sharing a little bit of their own loss, their own stories. And I can still remember one woman, older lady, sharing a story about her parents getting divorced. And she was launching into the story describing her experience as a five-year-old when she watched her dad leave the house for the last time, married to her mom. And as she's telling the story to this other rest of the group of the women, here's what it looked like. And there I was, I was a little five-year-old, and I'm in front of the window, the big picture window in our living room, and my mom, my mom and dad had just had a big fight, a big blow-up. And my dad storms down the steps and out towards the car and um, starts it up. And then she, and then, I don't know what got into me, a silly little girl, but I just, it was winter in Iowa, and there was snow all over the ground, but I, I just ran out of the house in my bare feet and down the pathway, and then the car has that big old tire on the back of the bumper. I just remember, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, I just grabbed a hold of that wheel and I hung on with my little bare feet right onto the frosted bumper and I hung on for dear life six miles till he got into town. <laughs> And everybody in group is doing just what you're doing right now. They're looking at her in horror, like, that's a terrible, horrendous story. And she's telling it like Nat King Cole told her to. Just smile, carry on, ignore the pain. Did, did you know that the tears that we cry when we are sad have a different chemical composition than the tears that you cry when you have something in your eye? They're different. Little factoid for you. There are three types of tears that we cry. One are called basal tears, which are tears that are intended to keep your eyes lubricated, which work really well until you get old, and you drops and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a second kind of tears, reflex tears, which is what your eyes do when there's bright lights shining in them, and um, that keeps them lubricated in those kinds of circumstances. Smoky, chemicals in the air, that kind of thing. The third kind of tears we refer to often as weeping tears, which is tears that are connected to our emotional experience we're having. Those tears have hormones and endorphins in them that are natural physical painkillers that help us navigate through the sad and tragic moments of our lives. 
they serve us physiologically. So the next time the little kid falls off of the trike and skins their knee and begins to cry, would you just please tell them, have at it, okay? Just cry it on out, Junior, because that's servicing them. So third is crying. Fourth, memorialize your losses. And what I mean by memorialize is find ways of honoring the hurts, the wounds, the losses that you have experienced. People do that in a variety of ways. I know people who have tattooed themselves all up. Some people write poems. Some people draw pictures. Some people send balloons into the sky. They buy toys. They write prayers. They collect tokens. They hold candle vigils. All of those are ways where we memorialize, we honor our hurts. My office actually is filled with all sorts of trinkets and treasures that document and record um, and memorialize the stories that I've heard, the hurts that I've experienced, and the tragedies that I've witnessed, and the sad places that I have been. We actually do that with our faith community in that we do it with the cross when we wear it as jewelry. I want you to think about this just for a moment from a different vantage point. I know it's pretty jewelry. But think about, we're wearing around a reminder of the very instrument that killed our Savior. You gotta admit that's a little odd. Like, if somebody lost one of their children to gun violence, we consider it a little strange that they would be wearing a necklace with a gun on it. All right? Why do we do that? We do it because it's a reminder to us of his cost and our gain, right? It's like the invitation to the Lord's Supper. This do in remembrance of me. Like, don't you forget this. This was no small thing. I want you to do this regularly so that you don't forget that grief experience, that loss. Even with Jesus in the room with the disciples after his resurrection, come, touch, touch. Yeah, touch my palms, my side. You can see those are remembrances. And that seems to suggest that those wounds we may see on Jesus when we arrive there. Why do I have these framed things in my house about places that I've been and circumstances that I've seen. 
they're memorializing my experience somewhere. It was the day after Christmas, the day after Christmas, 7.58 in the morning, 2004. There was a 9.1 size earthquake in the Indian Ocean off of Indonesia that set off a tsunami of incredible magnitude. 230,000 people died in less than two hours from the waves that hit those shores. The first waves were over 100 feet high. It's estimated that it released the same energy as 23,000 atomic bombs that hit Hiroshima. Two hours later, it made landfall in Sri Lanka. With 40-foot waves traveling, you, you think you can outrun, traveling at 500 miles an hour. That's how fast the waves came in. 30,000 people died in Sri Lanka that afternoon, that morning and 20,000 were swept out to sea, never to be seen ever again. I sat with a little girl and her grandmother. They lost 16 members of their family in that instant, the two of them being sole survivors. It devastated the coastline, which is where most of them made their living. I would go down in the morning to the beach because after the tsunami, people were terrified to be anywhere near the ocean. So I would go down to the beach and walk the beach in the morning, demonstrating that it was all right to be there. Day after day after day after day, I was met by flip-flops that people had had on when the tsunami hit, that each morning, in an uncanny kind of way, would wash ashore and line up along the beach, big and small. Beaches don't always look the same to me now because those experiences change us. I spent a month in Sri Lanka meeting with people in IDP camps and um, training therapists. As is my um, practice, I looked for something to bring home, and one of the things that I found was in a small local shop as I was wandering through one of the villages. A man explained to me that he had been carving it for an entire month since the tsunami. He began right after, trying to capture the look on the face of a woman that he had seen trying to shelter her children from the next wave. 
we memorialize so we won't forget. We pay honor and tribute to our hurts and our wounds, and we honor the wounds of those around us when we share with them in it. How have you memorialized your wounds this morning? What have you done to pay tribute to their cost, to honor what you have survived? Number five, grief is best processed in community. Did you hear Grandy say something about that last week as well? Tear soup is a meal that is best shared. Now, community can look a variety of ways, but we're not intended to be in grief by ourselves. It can look like sharing with a good friend, leaning on a loved one. It can look like sharing in a small group. Some people even see therapists. We process grief best when we sit in it with other people. I brought a little clip of a movie this morning to share with you. It feels like it deserves a little bit of an introduction. It's from a movie called Lars and the Real Girl. It's a whole movie about tragedy, loss, and grief, unhealthy and healthy. There is a scene in the movie where um, Lars, the primary character, has lost or is losing his girlfriend, which I should probably warn you is um, a silicone sex doll, okay? But she's dying, hypothetically, and the church and the community are coming around Lars now to support him. You're going to rush right home and watch this movie, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) And so we pick up the scene where Lars is with Bianca, his doll, girlfriend, because he's scared of having a real girlfriend because you might lose her, which is what happened to his mom when she died giving birth to him. And so now he has something that won't go away, but Bianca is in fact dying, and so some good church ladies teach Lars a really important lesson about grief. Watch. Come down to the family room, Lars. Let Bianca rest. We sent Gus and Karen to the movies. They didn't want to leave you two. I'm glad that they... I'm glad they left. I feel terrible that all this is happening so close to the baby coming. And that's how life is, Lars. Everything at once. We brought casseroles. Thank you. 
is there something that I should be doing right now? No, dear. You eat. We came over to sit. That's what people do when tragedy strikes. They come over and sit. Don't you feel a little better? We come over and we sit. That's how we come alongside. The word care finds its roots in the Gothic word kara, which means to lament. The word care means to lament. The most basic meaning of caring is to grieve, to experience sorrow, to cry out with. That's striking in that we tend to think of caring as an attitude of the strong towards the weak. Yet, it's more properly understood as an invitation to enter into the pain of another and to simply be present. One of the greatest gifts that we give to one another is to bear witness to someone's pain. I want to close this morning with a strange story from the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he tells a story that you're going to be familiar with. We call it the parable of the talents. I'm going to invite you this morning to consider a different perspective of it than maybe you've held before. He said, now the kingdom of heaven be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusts his property to them. To the one he gave five talents of money, to another two, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went out at once, put his money to work, gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five and said, Master, you entrusted me with five. I've gained five more. And his master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. And the man with the two talents also came and said, Master, you gave me two. I've gained two more. The master again replies, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now here's the twist in the story. Then the man who had received the one talent said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And here's the response. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant which is kind of a strange response. Got his talent back. The parable seems to be about investment. Do you see that? 
how do we invest what we receive? Now, some of us didn't just receive wonderful things. And when we think about talents, we often think about gifts that we have, talents in, in, in the strict sense of the word, abilities that we have. But Jesus is talking about what have you done with the investments around what you have received. Part of what we receive in life is loss and hurt and tragedy and pain. How have you invested in that? That's what this series is about. I don't believe that God brings us pain, but I'm suspicious that he wants us to redeem it that he wants us, with his help, to turn it into depth, wisdom, insight, to grow us up through it, to make us more into his likeness. He wants us to be good stewards of our pain, exchanging it for growth, wisdom, and depth. It's through the gates of pain that we enter joy. Those who grieve well, live well, and love others well. When we've let grief do its work in us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful to gather as your children this morning, that you would call us your children, that you would reach out to us as you have, that we get to share in your family, and that you share in our experiences here, that you grieve with us, that you're not untouched by our hurts, our harms. We're grateful that you love us as you do. Give us the courage, the strength to invest in our own losses and hurts and pain. Help us be good stewards of what we receive. We rest by faith, trusting you, Father. We walk by faith, following you, Jesus, into the deep and hard places. We hear in faith. Holy Spirit, and desire to obey. In you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we remain. Amen. Can you guys uh, help me thank Byron for being with us? So as our, as our worship team comes out and our Tear Soup series comes to a close, one of the things we want to openly recognize is that the journey isn't over. 
that grief and loss are regular parts of our lives. And so what we want to do really quickly is just highlight um, uh, that we've created a page on our Kesed website, uh, kesed.com slash tearsoup with resources in this area. A couple of different areas of resources. First of all, Kesed resources. Uh, we will be hosting a tear soup workshop uh, in the fall. Uh, the cost will be $20 a person. We want to make this affordable for everyone. And in this kind of half day workshop, it's going to be a great space where we invite local mental health licensed professionals in to kind of guide us. Uh, it's for anyone that wanting, that's wanting to go a little bit deeper into this grief and loss journey in a safe place to do so. We also are going to start a tradition as a church where we will host a grief service in December of each year, honoring and memorializing, as Byron talked about, uh, the losses that we've experienced throughout the year. And so we'll do that together. We'll create a sacred and a safe space together for us to, to, to walk through that journey uh, as a community. We also, just as a reminder, if you are struggling in what to do next, we have a pastoral and a care team that would love to support and, and, and care for you in your grief and loss journey. A couple of other things on the website. There are local and national resources, counselor referral information, and local grief groups. There's also resources from the Tear Soup book. Just We went through a lot of information over the last six weeks, and so just kind of recapping that, that's all on there as well. And then uh, a reminder, we have a, a Monday night recovery service called Celebrate Recovery. And one of the things that we know is that grief and loss often show up in relational uh, strife and also in addiction. And so we have a space created for people to kind of walk through that journey. Even today after this service, our ministry leaders will be out at the Welcome Center. If you're curious about that, they also have a, a night designed for people exploring that tomorrow night uh, as well. But all of that is to say that the journey's not over, friends. And again, I want to say that again, the journey is not over. Our job is to steward whatever comes our way in this life. And I feel, I feel it's really important to acknowledge one thing. As we talk about grief and loss, it's really easy to, to remember the one that's closest to us in time. But for many of us, many of us that are here, that are watching online, there are griefs and losses that we experienced a long time ago that I think that there's a narrative that says, I, sh I shouldn't unearth that. Maybe the newest one for me. But I think for, for many of us, things in our childhood and experiences that we've had, for us to be a church that heals well together, we're gonna have to walk into that space. And so I pray for a bravery and a courage that's willing to walk into that space. And I pray that we're a church that continually embraces that together. And so as I pray for us, I just, I hope you hear that this message isn't for everybody else. It's for you individually to continue to walk out this journey as the Holy Spirit leads you. I'd love for you to, to maybe stand with me uh, as we pray and, and close our time worshiping together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we trust and we know that you are here with us and we trust and we know that in all those hard places that we often don't want to acknowledge and don't want to go, that you are there as well. I pray a courage and a bravery and a conviction over each one of us individually that we would be willing to acknowledge your presence there. I pray for um, a humility in this congregation that says we might not know how to do this really well now, but we are going to commit ourselves to growing and learning how to not be miserable comforters, 
but gracious ones. And I pray, Lord, that this is a beginning, that years from now we look back at a change, at a commitment, at a Holy Spirit-led movement of a few people saying we trust God everywhere. So, Lord, we trust you and your ability to turn graves into gardens. We love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Now satisfied here. 